Economic Armageddon. <laughs> Start again, Joe. Economic Armageddon. Economic Armageddon. Yes. That's today's show. 9-11 times 1,000. No. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. At the end of last show, you gave a 10-minute explanation, which was it 10 minutes? I can't even remember because my head was kind of stuffed with the cold at the time. With the, with the army cold? <laughs> the the Deltacron is called now. Deltacron, yeah. Um, yeah, our last show was actually on something else, mainly about COVID and mass, was that? Psych- mass psychosis, mass transformation, whatever they call whatever. it. Whatever. That got banned on YouTube, which means we can't stream on YouTube today. That's why that we're on Facebook. Yeah. The show got banned. It, and we have a ban until tomorrow, right? Or to, yeah. Something like that. They said it's the seven ban. days, but they meant whatever. They meant whenever we decide that you're... So we couldn't live stream today on YouTube, so that's why we're late starting now. But uh, we are on Facebook. Amazing. It's amazing to be on Facebook. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that 10 minutes, though was it, it linked everything together and in the meantime at, what we had in mind at the time was Ukraine and the pressure against Russia mm-hmm. coming through Ukraine mm-hmm. <laughs> in the meantime Kazakhstan has exploded yeah so um, just this week yeah I think it started the first protests were last Sunday 2nd January and mm-hmm. um, within two days it was you know fires burning at the presidential palace at the main broadcaster in the country, um, at the parliament, there were people running around with guns. Mm-hmm. There were masses of people on the streets. At this point, now weekend, I say um, four thousand people have been detained in Kazakhstan. That's according to their own government. They didn't stop any up. There were no more updates at the point where they said eighteen of their police and military had been killed. Mm-hmm. They don't have a figure for how many civilians were killed. Civilians, you, which must include armed people. A couple of dozen, maybe something similar. Um, so the country looked like it was teetering. It went from camp to teetering in the space of a few days. Back to camp, relative. Back to relative camp. I'm looking at live updates on Sputnik, and yeah, shit's still happening. But yeah, as soon as the Russian and other countries in the... CSTO organization, that's a former Soviet state, basically, sent in troops on Thursday. Well, yeah. It calmed down. Yeah. Mainly Russia, though. It's still tense, but... um, I mean, to be be honest about it, I mean, obviously the CSTO is a Russia-led organization of those former former Soviet states that stands, basically, along its southern border, and it was done specifically back in... And Belarus and Armenia. Yeah. But it was done. But it's Russian troops, right? And it's Mostly. and that organization is Russian-led and organized by Russia for a very specific uh, reason, which is to protect Russia's borders, basically protect those countries and protect Russia's borders from um, from Western imperialism. Let's say that's that's the that's the only reason for it really existing. Essentially, of course, it's got economic factors and all that kind of stuff, but generally, it's a, it's a security uh, organization, kind of like a little mini NATO. Or, uh, a mini note, a NATO, and, and the Kazakh government said, "We have a collective security treaty. We're invoking, similarly to NATO, invoking this article, mm-hmm. which invites yeah. troops from the other member yeah. states to come in." Um, now, the one catch I heard in that, not necessarily from a critic, someone who would be skeptical of it, you know, from the get-go, was, "Well, that's in the event of the country being overrun by a foreign threat," mm. whereas to all appearances, this is a domestic situation, mm-hmm. and 
should that really have happened? He just threw that as a question. Yeah. Um, I think in their official depends what you call request it. to invite Russian troops, they add they tacked in a clause that yeah we don't know where these people yeah, have come well, from. Well, they've said since that they, they made the claim that they're from been funded abroad. from abroad, basically. Um, just give people a, a, an overview. Put up the Kazakh Ukraine uh, map just to, as a, as a as a teaser um, introduction to just you know. Where you are, what you're doing, what's going on here geographically. There's Kazakhstan on the right, obviously, and Ukraine. We included Ukraine there on the left. Um, you can see that, you know, we'll get into Ukraine a little bit as we go on, but <clears throat> obviously Ukraine right there on Russia's borders, on its uh, western border, and then there's a little relatively thin piece of Russian territory. Um, between Ukraine and the borders of Kazakhstan. So you can imagine if there was two serious kind of issues on Russia's borders that involved Russia um, in, in in Kazakhstan and in Ukraine, then, you know, that's a bit of a headache, a, a political headache, you know, uh, from, from a, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, it's, it's a problem, you know. Um, there's the rest of the kind of stands below Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and like you mentioned, uh, Armenia. Uh, is Armenia on the map there? Armenia didn't get a mention. It's then, uh, left of Azerbaijan yeah, there. It's just between Turkey and Azerbaijan. Uh, so, and then Belarus, obviously, above Ukraine. Um, so, the main city is far right, bottom left, just above, near the border of Kyrg- Kyrgyzstan. Um, how do you pronounce that? Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. Um, <laughs> um, the main city, Almaty, is 2 million people. There's only 20 million people in Kazakhstan. It's not. It's about two-thirds the size of Australia. It's a massive country. I've seen it overlaid on Europe. It's like the whole of the EU. Yeah, in, in uh, but only 20 million people. 2 million of them in the main city in Almaty in the bottom right-hand side. Um, so, yeah, basically, just to get to the point, the, the this uprising kind of rioting, whatever you want to call it, fairly serious over a very short period of time, um, very well organized, even though internet uh, was shut down, which is usually why these grassroots uh, revolt, uh, usually how they communicate with each other, it's done, a lot of it's done via the internet, you know, the internet was shut down, the, the main violent rioters were able to continue to communicate with each other, uh, apparently some people said they had kind of like satellite radios or something like that, so there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these were people who were well, it was well planned, well in advance, they had very specific targets to, to attack, uh, they attacked the uh, kind of media stations, the main government buildings in, in, in different places. Um, and police stations. And police stations, obviously, they were, they, ha- they were apparently were well armed, had a lot of weapons and stuff, so it's not your average grassroots uprising about the price of gas, for example. Um, apparently a lot of people in, in Kazakhstan, most people who drive cars, most people who drive cars, most people who drive cars use um, uh, LPG liquefied petroleum gas because uh, it's cheaper or whatever and you know the prices went up doubled since last year or whatever and this was supposedly the reason the official western media narrative as to why they were uh, <laughs> why people were, were, were rioting of course there's other issues in that like as in every country um, you might, you might, there's probably a lot of political corruption I mean the, the, there's only one party effectively in Kazakhstan Yeah, but of course and to western ears that suggests, you know, well, it's obvious why people would rise up then. Only one party? That's horrific. How can they live under that, you know? They must be really annoyed at only having one political party, a dictatorship, right? But, you know, 
that's a myopic Western view of the world. Uh, they think everything should mirror Western values, basically. They don't. Uh, the rest of the world doesn't. A lot of the rest of the world doesn't. So uh, we don't have enough time to get into that, obviously. But the argument that it was some kind of mass uh, grassroots uprising clamoring for democracy and have had enough of, you know, two decades of dictatorship and, and uh, you know, or probably more like three decades of dictatorship since the Soviet since the, the Soviet Union, um, it doesn't doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit this picture. The picture of what actually happened doesn't doesn't fit with that narrative. Basically, it does suggest. Um, I mean, one if you put up the RT article, for example, one uh, evidence uh, the the first one on um, media media text. One thing that you see from uh, major media organisations, in um, uh, or, or sorry, from from Western governments in response to attacks on the media, one th big thing they always t uh, they, they they use to uh, to attack um, governments they don't like is their suppression of media, and especially when there's some kind of a anytime there's attacks in the media, basically because it's, it's a core aspect of the West's freedom, right, of Western democracy is freedom of the press, right? So any attacks anywhere in the world on the media is seriously clamped down on by, or seriously criticised by um, by Western governments and Western media. Um, that happened in, in Kazakhstan over the, over the course of this week where the media offices were attacked and journalists were abused and arrested, and, or not arrested, but kind of held captive, and there wasn't a peep out of uh, Western democracies or Western media organisations about that. So you put it all together and um, you can see that uh, this wasn't... It, it fit the picture of a kind of Western-backed... Colour revolution. Colour revolution where they... Well, we can get into the other thing as well. Well, we know as well the... Um, I don't have the link here exactly, but we're the, a, a major part of the outcome of this or the response by the Kazakh government was to arrest the a kind of high-level politician. He was a former Mazumov, is his surname. Yeah. Arrested him and accused him of treason, and there would probably be others along with that. So um, that, again, points to something going on within government. Uh, were, were so, certain, a certain section or certain part of the Kazakh government had been compromised and was facilitating this kind of a attempted coup or attempted uh, overthrow of the of the regime, or just embroiling the country in, in in kind of chaos, basically. You know what I mean? With, probably with the idea of, you know, in terms of Western Western government, particularly American, British attempts to. Uh, overthrow stage coups and overthrow uh, setting governments in countries they don't like. The first, the first um, part of the process usually is that they embroil the country in, in, in a kind of conflict or chaos, right? Uh, with an, uh, with the hope of that leading up to or you know putting international pressure then on the on the country for the response, the violent response of government to uh, peaceful demonstrators, blah blah blah, and then the government becomes illegitimate. It has to leave uh, under international pressure. But not so much under international pressure, but usually under the kind of the the, the violence and the armed groups that are uh, that have been funded and supported by Western uh, governments in that country. They're the ones who ultimately ca cause um, governments to flee because they flee for their lives. Basically, um, that's what happened in Ukraine in 2014, and we'll get into that in a minute. So, 
anybody who's looked at this and who knows the history of Western-backed colour revolutions in different places around the world, and even before colour revolutions, just CAA-backed uh, uh, coups uh, around the world during the, all throughout the Cold War period, uh, immediately recognise this, especially if you understand the geopolitical context in which it's happening, you understand this is very likely a, a, in some way or other British or American or both backed over a fairly long period of time, uh, building up the, the details and the, 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 the infrastructure, let's say, within, within the country in, in order to implement this kind of a, of a riot or revolt. So that's pretty much what happened. Why? Well, they do it because they can, uh, generally speaking. They do it because they don't like for one reason or another. For one geopolitical reason or another, they don't like or want to cause a problem for the government in that country, ideally to remove it. But often, it, uh, in this particular context, it would have direct, uh, a direct relationship to America's geopolitical intentions towards Russia. Obviously, as we just saw on the map there, Kazakhstan on the border of Russia, if you create a problem... In Kazakhstan, if you can kind of have a successful coup, get rid of the government, install some bunch of, maybe a bunch of Muslim extremists, who knows anybody other than the existing government, yeah. because the existing government is, is aligned with Russia. So you want to get rid of them and get anybody else in that you can control that's aligned with the West, essentially. And you just cause a problem for Russia, because Russia, first and foremost, Kazakhstan is a, a buffer, one of the, like a buffer state. All around Russia's borders have either got sea, or they've got uh, countries that they want to keep either friendly with Russia or at the very least neutral. Uh, when you have a country that is antagonistic towards you, from Russia's point of view, uh, right on your border, that's you know that's a red line in the current geopolitical climate and, and context. Um, not related to Ukraine, obviously, but in terms of, of Kazakhstan and those other stands along Russia's southern. South, south central border they're all buffer states and they have to remain from Russia's perspective they have to remain um, friendly and it would be a kind of a you know it would be a a benefit let's say geopolitically benefit to America to turn those countries to being anti-Russian yeah um at, at the same at the same time uh, there are a lot of Videos of a lot of people in the streets. Yeah. Considering the small population in this country, considering the amount of gunfire mm -hmm. and violence mm -hmm. we've seen, you know, this <coughs> Kiev sort of type stuff coming out where police police lines protecting buildings have been run over by apparently civilians. They just ran through them, mm -hmm. and then they have you know a wave of people on foot, foot soldiers behind them mm -hmm. to, to mm -hmm. back them up and to challenge and just take the police. There's video of um, police being, people being shot at their own arm, but they overwhelm police and take the guns off. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I just want to sort of play devil's advocate here and, and not discount completely that there seems to be some seething undercurrent or several. Mm -hmm. For example, one possible one that uh, you won't hear mentioned for different reasons in the media, is that Kazakhstan, as a country, went full COVID. Mm -hmm. Mandatory vaccines, I think, QR codes to get into mm -hmm. restaurants, you know, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a seething undercurrent everywhere, yep. from Switzerland to Guadeloupe to, right. you know, the North Pole at the moment. So how easy it is 
in, in this overall climate to mm-hmm. provoke and to press go on well-laid plans, as you suggested. But those well-laid yeah. plans will only ever have there be a minority, you know. You might have, typically what might have happened in the before times, mm-hmm. like as CNN puts it, is like what happened in the attempted coup d'état and overthrow of Erdogan in 2016. Mm-hmm. We had a well-organized plan. I'm pretty sure the later figures produced by the Turks is probably in the ballpark where they said we've arrested and questioned at least around 18,000 people mm-hmm. of direct or indirect involvement mm-hmm. in what took place. And then the main reason that that failed was not the failure of organizational military planning. It got to the point where Erdogan was in the air in semi-holding pattern with a view to fleeing. Mm-hmm. And he could only come down once there were people, enough people that came out on the streets and threw themselves in front of tanks. Mm-hmm. Some two to 300 people died by taking on armed people mm-hmm. with no Military, weapons. Yeah. So it required the opposite conditions. Imagine now if you had to do that to Turkey today. I'm not sure of the situation in Turkey vis-a-vis going full COVID, but let's imagine they have something like that. Mm-hmm. You would have more chances of success because of a seething undercurrent from ongoing issues. Yeah, it depends on the country, yeah. Uh, certainly, in any in any country around the world, again, it depends. It's very specific. There's no there's no one size fits all. Obviously, it depends on the specifics within the country and the the culture and the temperament of the the population. Um, Kazakhstan is majority Muslim. It is, yeah, uh, which is another current 60, of yeah, yeah. It is, you can yeah. see how it, it's over the years of the war on terror and all the stuff and the yeah. radicalization of Muslims. That probably. That's another thing that the state there has had to keep an eye on and keep mm-hmm. a lid on. For sure, yeah. We know that two of the cops, well, there's no reason to doubt the official reports anyway, they said that two of the police were decapitated. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. a marker yeah, of yeah. a Muslim fanatical element to this. Yeah, definitely. There, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't, there are obviously are, uh, you know, issues within uh, in Kazakhstan in terms of uh, people, the, the people's unhappiness with government but people generally speaking will put up with a lot of shit yeah. uh, unless they're you know until, up to the point they're they can't take it anymore you know uh but it does I'm, so i'm not discounting the fact that there's obviously discontent among the population with the kazakh government the fact that there's no rep, no other uh there's no opposition party basically of, of any of any note and also yeah covid puts people on edge um and also the, but the main thing that was mentioned was is uh kind of double increase in gas prices and liquefied uh, petroleum gas that's prices the spark, for the cars. Which is right. gas. Yeah. And that's interesting. Right. But again, that'll make people unhappy in certain places. Some people, not everybody, some people in, in some places, they'll be willing to get out in the streets. Maybe they, have, they already had been out in the, streets, in the streets. For example, if you look at the an interesting, the, the Kaz JPEG, uh, this is an interesting, <coughs> this is a, an alert from the... Um, the U.S. mission in Kazakhstan, I mean, it's sent around to all, um, <clears throat> sent around from the U.S. State Department, but sent specifically to the U.S. mission in Kazakhstan, uh, talking on December 16th, saying that those events, the opposition party, which is the democratic choice for Kazakhstan, which is probably a Western-funded, you know, NGO. Uh, NGO-type, well, supported uh, new democratic party in Kazakhstan, they have no real representation because they're not, I suppose, they're not allowed to because Demo- uh, Kazakhstan is a one-party state. But anyway, they've, these, this group were, this party, 
uh, that doesn't really, like I said, have any any representation at Kazakhstan or doesn't represent very many people, at least not officially, had uh, planned a demonstration on December 16th and it was banned by the government. And and they're banned as an extremist group. Um, So on December 16th, the U.S. State Department knew and was telling its officials in in the embassy in in Almaty and and Kazakhstan, uh, warning them about you know possible disruptions, possible protests and riots, and a dangerous situation on December sixteenth. And none of this. This is at least two weeks before anything actually happened. In, in and they mentioned at the bottom actually uh, talk about the likelihood of smaller demonstrations are possible. Uh, well. Demonstrators possibly gather in front of the Holomodor Monument. Dem- demonstrators in Almaty and in, in another town. Um, they say non-sanctioned demonstrations usually end with mass arrests. Embassy personnel have been instructed to avoid the gatherings and protests. Even demonstrations intended to be peaceful can turn confrontational and escalate into violence. You should avoid demonstrations and exercise caution in the vicinity of large gatherings or protests. They talk a little bit further down, I think. Oh, no, just above there as well as internet network outages. So they had, you know, this is uh, eyes on the ground, right? Eyes and ears all over the place. The uh, U.S. State Department's eyes and ears all over the place knowing that this, this was planned. Did they know it was planned because they've probably given a lot of money to this particular group? This uh, democratic, uh, you know, new democratic political party in Kazakhstan. But the point being, um, yes, there's an undercurrent of discontent among among certain sections of the population for different reasons. One 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 discontent one one problem that unites a lot of poorer people obviously is an, a double double increase, a doubling of the price of gas over a period of, of several months. I'll get you out in the street and protest and stuff, but where does the sudden uh, extreme violent intent and organisation come from to the point where, you know, the, the government uh, is, is is threatened, you know, over gas prices, you know? I mean, you talk about COVID and stuff. I mean, look at European countries. Yeah. Where's where's the revolution in European countries over COVID? Well, with foreign help, we would see it. Maybe. Maybe, exactly. <laughs> but it's what I mean, well, that's it. They're it's not, very, it's not very carefully It's managed. not organic. The average person, grassroots, ordinary people who are complaining about something, have a problem with some government policy or with with government itself, have protests, have peaceful protests. It, they don't, from almost from one day to the next, they're not able to, from one day to the next, turn that peaceful pro- grassroots protests into what appears to be a coup where you, where you get close to or you potentially threaten yeah. the existence of the government basically. Yeah. Okay folks, it we need to happen. take these police stations, right. the main state broadcaster, um, the military barracks right. and the airport. Right. They wrecked the airport, right. the civilian you know, terminals at right. the airports. And there were early reports, I think it's fake news in the end, that they were actually trying to take over control of the airfield, yeah. control yeah. tower and airplanes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there was a big exodus of private jets out of that airport as well in Almaty that, over the, those few days of people flying to Russia and to Europe and stuff because they were concerned, seriously concerned of, about what was going on. That kind of a fear and a kind of exodus of the elite uh, doesn't happen in the face of grassroots, pro- grassroots protests about the price of gas. Yeah, It doesn't happen. Yeah, And yeah, this kind of organization doesn't happen without outside help. Yeah. I think I don't think I think anyone really disagrees with that. Well, CNN definitely disagrees with it. Oh, really? Yes. I, and on the whole, I've seen I've seen a BBC, BBC report saying that 
at the root of this is probably a, a spat for control of government, i.e. it's a coup of, of sorts. Now, they're, they're just not mentioning the foreign element of it, but they're at least trying to come up with a plausible reason for the suddenness and the strong impact it had. You know, within a space of mm. days, yeah, yeah. It's, it's clear like, that it's any funded, reasonable mo- funded person, and organized. But the source of, the, of that is what's this what's was an question top of the government, yeah. and as such, it's not just the people coming up and overthrowing. Yeah, CNN, no, we'll see what it wants to see. But yeah, I haven't seen much kind of jumping on the bandwagon to paint this as a spontaneous, no, organic. Revolution. I mean, at the very least, they'll just they'll, well, they. Don't paint it in that way, but just report it in that way, type thing, and leave out any any sensible explanation of what's really happening. They give you oh, yeah. this banal, bullshitty type explanation and just leave it at that. You know, that's most of the reporting on it. Uh, but yeah, any any other outlets that would go into a more de- normally go into a more in depth analysis of it haven't been doing that to, to a large extent because you know uh, they'll have to give the whole idea of foreign intervention a wide berth. You know, yeah, um, as they always do. So and Kazakhstan, another political issue that's going on, ongoing because for almost three decades, the president, again, it's a one-party state, but it's multiple clans, something mm. like that, mm. and he's you know spread out around the country. He's kind of the, the monarch-like, and he's trying to balance all the interests within the country. Right. Um, that's Nazarbayev. Mm-hmm. He's like. He's, the he's in guy. there longer than Putin. He's, he's in, in there longer than Lukashenko. Well, he's eighty-one years old. Like he was the prime minister. He was the he, president. He he. Got, he's formally done, but he's not. He's actually the head of the Security Council. Right. But he but he he willingly so he's, he's, he willingly left that job uh, or, or resigned from that in the face of these protests as a kind of sop to the so at least some of the protesters. And, and he, did he, he did, did he yeah. say he's left that? Okay. Yeah, he's willingly and, and what do you call him? Um, the actual the actual Tokayev uh, is Tokayev. the actual president. The actual president kind of like you know claimed that he had kind of like removed him from that position, but it was with with that with uh, 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 what's his name? Nazbayev. Nazbayev. uh with his. Compliance, basically. Yeah. Uh, so the two of them don't seem to be. They're not in opposition. No. It wasn't one kicking the other out, whatever. You know what I mean? No. It was. But it's this other guy. Other guy. Um, uh, I've forgotten his name. Mas. Um, I have it here. The, there's too many. Too many different names here. Well, this other guy is some character, Karim Masimov. He Masimov. was twice prime minister under Nazarbayev, and then he was head of the Security Council. Himself. I mean, they've known each other since the nineties, right? Uh, Head, head of the Security Council I, as, as well. He was. That was his most that's, recent. That's cur- that was his most recent. Wasn't position. he head of intelligence? Same thing. Okay, same thing there. But he. Uh, this guy. Well, he's he's a guy. He's a guy who's been accused of being of of, of treason. Yes, uh, he's along been with arrested. Others, uh, arrested and accused of treason. He's the he would be the point man who would have been in a position to enable these kind of uh, groups to be spread around the country and to act act in the way they acted, you know what I mean? Um, so, and he obviously, you know, America has a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, relatively a lot of American um, involvement in Kazakhstan um, in terms of funding and NGOs and, you know, oil companies yeah. and stuff involved and all that kind of stuff. Compared, back, to, compared to Russia, Kazakhstan has made a point of being far more open, open to right. Western yeah. Which interests means there's all the sorts 90s. of meetings back and forth and uh, at a high level between government officials or, or intelligence officials and over the years you can get in contact with this uh, Mazumov guy 
and uh, and flesh something out. In well, terms if, of if you look him up on uh, and do a Google image search, well, that's he, the other thing. he shakes hands with everyone. He's been there with um, everyone in Washington. Right, going back to yeah, just go to New York. Bush administration. Go up to go to the New York Post. There, uh, this is from just last year. Um, Um, headline Joe Biden was a quote regular at DC hotspot where he met hunters the son Kazakh associates let me just scroll down there so anyway uh, you'll see the name um, where is it Karen Mazmov second paragraph towards the end so there's just a report basically on Hunter and Joe Biden hooking up in Washington, D.C. with this guy Mazamov, who was... Introducing uh, them to former oligarchs in Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan to do deals, to make a bunch of money, to loot, loot the country, corruption, etc. So whenever American politicians and Joe Biden, for example, might talk or his spokespeople might talk about corruption in Afghanistan or corruption in Kazakhstan, then uh, Joe Biden and Hunter, Hunter Biden are front and centre in that corruption, obviously. If you scroll down, actually, the photo in question shows this... Um, Massimov guy with the Bidens at this restaurant in New York where they frequently met. This is the photo on the, right on the right is Masimov. the Kasimov. Massimov yeah. character. And on the left is the oligarch son of some other oligarch mm-hmm. um, who had who was telling the Bidens. This all came up by the way on the Hunter Biden laptop. Do you remember that thing? No, you don't because the media banned any information about it. But it still leaked out. Subsequently, the guy on the left had $300 million to spare and he wanted to invest in the United States. So Hunter got the big guy in on a deal to help the Kazakh oligarch launder money money in the United States Mm -hmm. thanks to former prime minister and recently arrested for treason guy on the right. Mm -hmm. Um, The other detail that emerged from this report last year is that Masimov helped Hunter Biden create a company registered in Kazakhstan called Burisma Kazakhstan. Right, he likes that he name. He couldn't even come up with a new name. He just said, well, we've opened a franchise in Ukraine. Let's do one in called Kazakhstan. Burisma. Yep. There's going to be a global empire. Um, so now this isn't a place the Biden's at the center of the conspiracy, but it just means that they follow. Shows how involved they are. They follow the money, they follow the empire, they follow the intrigue. If, if it's to be had, let's get it. Well, it, what it shows is access to high-level members of the, you know, well, Joe Biden, the current sitting president, his son, and obviously you can expand that out to many other people. They're, they're direct, very friendly business deals and personal contacts with uh, this guy, Mazimov, who was just accused of treason in Kazakhstan over the attempted coup, riots, whatever you want to call it, over the past week. So just, you know, make sure people get that clear in their head. Joe Biden, best buddies, business deal, $300 million with a guy, former PM in Afghanistan, who was just accused of treason over the riots or the attempted coup. Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan uh, over the attempted coup. Mm-hmm. So there you go. It puts Joe Biden pretty much at, not at the center of it, but... Well, it's what he was doing in his down it. years. Right. He had been well, vice president. Was, no, that was subsequent. It was in 2018, between. yeah. But it was still, you know... Pay for play. It's yeah. access to DC and lobbying. But he, the, the contacts were first made when he was VP. While he was VP, because that's the that's the attraction, right? He's got access, right? He's VP under under Obama. Uh, just go to the uh, Telegraph um, article. Um, 
This is a response from the British government. They seized 600 million worth of assets belonging to the Kazakh government, uh, or sorry, calling for and calling for sanctions uh, in the wake of a brutal crackdown. Uh, again, no context, no understanding of you know the way these what's usually behind these kind of yeah. uh, protests brutal crackdown is definitely not fair on the government it's more likely it was a brutal attack on them that's yeah. that's certainly what From happened overseas first. yeah to the extent of a crackdown I don't, we don't know we know that this guy's been arrested mm-hmm. um the reports have First started reason. to slow down about what's going on there but um at this point the Kazakhstan government is back in charge of yes. the airport, certainly, of the state media. Yeah, pretty much of all of it. It seems to have gone away very quickly, and it coincided with Russia's like very quick uh, response in terms of sending in, I think they sent in 2,500 troops to secure key areas. Now, that's interesting in itself. They, they don't necessarily, they don't send, Russia doesn't send troops onto the streets to deal with any kind of violence or, or protesters or shooting. They send Russian troops to... 2,500 of them separated up into key areas in different parts of the of the country and in, in the major uh, city in, in Almaty. And that makes everything calm down. Yes. What uh, does that tell you? Ostensibly, they, they said the strategic reason for that was to free up Kazakh resources to confront the gunfire Maybe uh, the clashes directly. Maybe, but it's still only 2,500, you know. Yeah, um, but the, you're suggesting that there's a messaging factor alone, which is, look, if we need to, we'll do what we have to do, and that immediately makes the operators go, okay, back out, everyone. Yeah, we're not going to more. achieve our objectives, which is not just to have people in the street protesting about uh, gas prices, it's to take over key infrastructure areas or in infrastructure um you know, buildings, etc., and, and strategic, resor- sites. strategic resources uh, in order to affect a generalized coup in the country. If you can't get that, then there's no point, which exposes the fact that was the point all along. But that was kind of nipped in the bud, and that's the end of the protest, basically. I mean, you still might have some protests, but it goes back to people in the streets. Well, a few dozen go pe- back to protests. A, f- a few dozen people in the streets protesting about the, ga- the price of gas. Yeah. That's which is what, in theory, that's what it always was, except for this brief interlude of uh, it almost being a, a violent, bloody coup d'état. Yeah, isn't it amazing how fast that swung into action? Mm-hmm. Um, Overnight, yeah. I mean, I've, to wrap their, their heads around it, people have tried to analyze and go, well, did they actually instigate? the gas price rise, knowing that no, no, that's too much. I think it's more like that happened. There was, an there was a, a, mass, a protest called for, a, particularly in the gas and oil producing regions in, city, in a city over in the uh, mm-hmm. far west of Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. near the Caspian Sea. Right. And within 36, 48 hours, it's like the no. whole government's under siege. Right. You know, police are having their head cut off, yeah. um, which suggests that there's a hotbed of organization that's always there and then someone just presses go mm-hmm. when opportunity yeah, arises it's well planned in yeah. advance and they're ready to go on the on the order right and they know what to do uh i mean in four days there's the thing that they've been talking about for a month now about russian invasion of ukraine russian invasion of ukraine russia in their lexicon invaded kazakhstan and it's calmed down mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> 
Exactly. Although they did it in you know, a step-by-step formal way where they were invited in, CSTTSO, mm-hmm. which is, of course, what Russia would love to be how they would love to be putting out the fire in Ukraine, except mm-hmm. that's all teed up to prevent them from intervening at all because, quote, Russian invasion, mm-hmm. sovereignty of nations and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but what a switch. I mean, we were all looking at Ukraine and going, okay, what's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. And then, boom, Kazakhstan. Yeah. yeah. And that speaks a lot to Russian uh, concerns. concerns about Ukraine. And remember, it's only six months. I mean, things move fast these days. But in the space of a year, three countries on Russia's border, four if you include Afghanistan, really, go back to last August. Go back to last July, there's the, you know, it was the same month, wasn't it? That was interesting as well. It was the same month where Belarus had the mass protests over mm-hmm. their election mm-hmm. in early August. And it was 10 days later, the news was going fast. It was suddenly Afghanistan was an issue. Mm-hmm. And in between, Russia, with all the stands, held massive, quote, anti-terrorist drills Mm -hmm. in those countries, Mm -hmm. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. They weren't held in Russia. Mm -hmm. Russian troops came down and they did joint drills. In the buffer zone. In the buffer zone to simulate a war game where they were creating a line of defense Mm -hmm. against a horde, in quotes, Mm -hmm. coming from Afghanistan. Afghanistan, In Toyota pickup trucks. Yeah, <laughs> probably. So uh, it's all connected. Yeah, it's all connected, man. Mind blown. <laughs> Mind blown, man. Uh, no, it's uh, yeah, but this, but it's a no duh for Russia. But whenever they're trying to communicate the seriousness of, as how they see it to anyone else, it's like yeah, right. These are this is Russia. This is Russian scheming to get more stuff, to mm-hmm. get more land, to get more of Ukraine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, for to, sure. To absorb Belarus, mm-hmm. to absorb its for, any of its former USSR states. Yeah. Um, but no, the, the actual sequence of events demonstrates, it's the clear evidence in their favor for why they're always concerned with things flaring up. On the borders. In, on the borders. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what America does. That's what America has done throughout the entire Cold War. Uh, it tried to do through through the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And then it uh, just segued straight into Cold War Two, which was no difference. Basically, Russia was smaller, uh, but those former Soviet republics that used to be part of the Soviet Union were, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and, and especially when Putin came along, they became Russia's buffer countries. They're not exactly, they're not part of the Soviet Union, they're not owned by Russia, but they're allied with Russia. They should be allied with Russia from Russia's point of view. And America has just continued to try and attack and, and uh, Russia's borders, basically, and to try and push back against Russia and put pressure on Russia. Because Russia is a peer competitor in different ways and a threat to American hegemony in the world. And th- that's what America does to those kind of, um, to con- any, any country that can potentially uh, challenge them or compete with them on uh, an equal footing in, in different ways, then America doesn't like that and sees you as a threat and will do whatever it can to uh, harry you and harass you and try and ultimately they'd love to kind of overthrow your government and uh, take control of you, but they'll do everything they can up to that point. Um, yeah, so anyway, Russia is talking about Kazakhstan. They're having a meeting tomorrow on Monday with these other... Um, Former republics on the uh, what's that? What's the acronym? S- uh, Collective Security CS- CSTO, CSTO uh, countries about the situation in, in Kazakhstan to kind of like just to put it to bed basically. And then I think on Wednesday 
they are having talks with Russia's having talks with the US partners as Putin likes to call them on Ukraine because that's still boiling away in the background and if we just go to CNN there I know I don't like to go to CNN very often but sometimes it's instructive to just see <laughs> see what the what the state department wants you to think uh, Biden officials weighing Russia sanctions options after warnings about economic fallout and heightened cyber risk for U.S. and allies. So if you down, we'll read a little bit of this. Uh, CNN, it's awesome in its arrogance and hubris. Uh, so basically, Biden administration still weighing exactly how it would penalize Russia if the country invades Ukraine. So there's this supposed still threat from uh, Russia that it'll invade Ukraine. Of course, the reason Russia might invade Ukraine, um, if you just throw back up that uh, the, the map, there, Scotty, for a second. Uh, Ukraine invasion of Ukraine would be in the area marked Donbass there, uh, which is separatist, uh, pseudo, partly kind of semi-independent republic that broke away after in 2014 after the U.S. staged a coup in Ukraine in an attempt to take over Crimea, which is in green there at the bottom of Ukraine, which used to be part of Ukraine, but in response to the U.S. Um, Staging basically a coup, if everybody remembers, 2014, Euromaidan, all the violence and the fleeing of uh, of uh, Yanukovych, the former prime minister, who was pretty much, you know, centrist, moderate, you know, not really aligned fully to Russia, but certainly not aligned with the West either. He was trying to play a balancing act. The Americans didn't like that because they wanted to take Ukraine for them. They want a fully uh, compliant Ukraine so that they can then do all sorts of things in Ukraine, obviously control it. Well, we know about uh, Biden and Hunter Biden looting uh, Ukraine uh, and engaged in massive corruption Corruption in Ukraine. That's one part of it, obviously, and other people are involved in that as well in the U.S. But geopolitically, Ukraine is important for the U.S. Uh, so that it can push right up to Russia's borders and it can make Ukraine a kind of NATO country where they can install, install U.S. missiles pointed at Russia without actually saying that Ukraine is part of NATO, let's say. Uh, so in response to that coup that facilitated that that takeover of U Ukraine by the US, Russia decided, okay, well, obviously one of your main reasons is for doing this is to deny us uh, access to Crimea, which gives us access through Constantinople to the Mediterranean because Russia has its uh, Black Sea fleet in, in Ukraine there in Sevastopol. Uh, America wanted to deny that to Russia, so they tried to, they did, that's why they did the coup, and they were, the plan was, well, you're not allowed to use the, the base in, in Ukraine anymore because now America owns Ukraine. So Russia, and also obviously to push right up against Russia's borders. So the best Russia could do in that situation was to very quickly, if you remember, take, take Ukraine, have a referendum. The referendum was overwhelmingly in support of Ukraine joining Russia. So then it turned green, as you can see. Uh, and the purple Donbass area and below it Luhansk, uh, that's Donetsk and Luhansk, those two areas very much... Uh, pop, you know, vast majority populated by ethnic Russians who see themselves as a Russian, who speak Russian. They decided to declare independence and with the help of Russia uh, militarily. They were able to defend themselves from the pretty shitty at the time. It has to be, it has to be said, the sh pretty shitty and, and ragtag uh, Ukrainian army that couldn't do very much to actually do anything about them doing that. So, but in the meantime, in the last seven years, what's been happening is that Russia has been. Oh, sorry, America has been arming and training and upgrading the Ukrainian army to the point that over the past couple of months there's been a, a, a building crisis because the Ukrainians have been emboldened because they've got American weaponry to and they're threatening basically to try and 
maybe invade uh, that Donbass and below it the Luhansk area. And this is what the whole talk about uh, Russia possibly invading Ukraine, right? It's because Ukraine is invading Ukraine in a way. Ukraine is threatening under the uh, guidance of America, the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian government is, is threatening, has been threatening to you know, inflict a lot of uh, suffering and death on the people in that Donbass, and Luhan- particularly Donbass or Donetsk region area, and putting Russia in a bind in the sense of they feel the need to defend those people and not let them be slaughtered, and also to not give up something they craft, they, they, they carved out in 2014 after the US coup in, U- in Ukraine, they carved out those two areas as a kind of te- you know, interim buffer zone, basically, to yeah. contain a little bit of that buffer between it's Russia's border and Ukraine, which was now a U.S. protectorate, basically. And I guess they imagined <coughs> to have a say in how things would develop in Ukraine as a whole. As well. Influence. But that hasn't changed. <coughs> no. Instead, the weapons just keep coming in. Right. For sure. So uh, it's not so much that Russia's, uh, despite what the media, Western media is saying and Western governments are saying that Russia attempt- might invade Ukraine. The only reason Russia would invade Ukraine, and they wouldn't invade Ukraine, that invade, invade or in some way facilitate the people in that Donetsk, Don- Donbass region to defend themselves against Ukrainian slash US aggression against them, where they would be attempting to take that purple area back uh, from Russia, effectively, or from, or, uh, and prevent it from being Russia-aligned, essentially. So it's not as simple as you're being, uh, as, as it's been explained to you, obviously. It's, in fact, it's, it's closer to the opposite than what the, the Western media says. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the West is really attempting to, in a certain sense, invade Russia. And Russia is concerned about what it might be provoked to do by the US crossing this line or pushing it or, or antagonizing, antagonizing it to this extent. Um, so that's basically what's going on. So if we go back to the CNN article, this is... Um, this is what they're talking about when they say that still weighing exactly how it would penalize Russia if the country invades Ukraine. Uh, some Biden administration officials are warning of collateral economic damage from harsh sanctions and the risk of retaliatory Russian cyber attacks, blah, blah, blah. Should the U.S. follow through with Biden's promised severe consequences on the Russian economy if Russian if Putin orders a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Now, of course, Putin is going... I don't think Putin's ever going to order order a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, but they're talking it up like that in order to justify this severe sanctions. Well, what are these? Because these are different. This is not the same as what we've seen over the last seven years. The main thing would be the mothball Nord Stream 2. You think the main thing? That and... I've you know, heard that they the mo- intend to basically block Russia's use of the international financial system. Right, of SWIFT. Access to SWIFT, Obviously. and also they would penalise them in, in terms of uh, being able to do international, you know, financial transactions, all that kind of stuff. They would sanction the sanctions would exp- they would be expanded and extended financial sanctions against Russian companies, Russian Russian individuals, trade, Russian international financial trade, basically, because America has a lot of leverage over that, uh, along with its partners, but also Nord Stream too. All of it together would be very bad. Yeah, of course. If we read on. They say. Uh, Two analyses were done in recent weeks by the Treasury and State Departments found that sanctions that would be most crippling to Russia could also damage economies throughout the rest of the world. By potentially spiking gas prices or hampering European trade and investment with Russia at a particularly delicate moment for the bloc, i.e. for the EU. So this would be, you know, if, if, if America was to impose sanctions on Russia, 
the Americans know that it could be disastrous for Europe. But you know what? Tough shit. Freedom, we're going to do freedom calls. So we're going to damage, severely damage the European economy because we can by imposing sanctions on Russia. It just, just that statement alone should yeah. clue people in to just how the world works yeah. and how, you know. Yeah. Uh, but one concern is that those negative effects could boomerang back onto the US during an election year. Ooh. Sources told CNN. But others in the administration believe the tough sanctions being weighed would have a manageable impact on the US and would be worth it to impose severe penalties on Russia. So it would be worth it because America wouldn't be, they think, wouldn't be so badly affected. Europe would be screwed, but it would be worth it for America to push back against Russia. Yeah. The extent of the blowback would depend largely on the parameters of the sanctions and how much Europe would suffer, said Jeff Schultz. Can you scroll down there, Scotty? Okay, uh, stop. The problem with discussing these countermeasures is that if you take a strong sanctions action, that has a big impact on the European economy that will in turn rebound onto the US economy. Um, so here's the details. The administration has been considering options including targeting major Russian commercial banks, sanctioning Russia's energy sector, blocking Russia's access to bond markets, cutting Russia off from the SWIFT international payment system and tightening export control measures. And then the one of the most realistic economic penalties that the US and its allies could impose would be to kill the Russia to Germany gas pipeline project, Nord Stream 2, which blah, 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 accounts for 10 to 50% of European Union gas consumption, but will bypass Ukraine and be a major boon to Russia. So they've been lobbying Germany to commit to, to, commit to killing the pipeline of, in Russian vids, which the Germans have more or less signed up to. Uh, scroll down a little bit. Uh, whatever we decide in concert with our allies and partners is the right course for our collective interests and security. We are prepared to deliver severe costs to the Russian economy while minimizing unwanted spillover. Uh, it's, uh, so the, yeah. well, they're talking about themselves, obviously. This is the elite talking about themselves because obviously uh, whatever we decide in concert with our allies and partners, that's you know European governments, is the right course for our collective interests and security. But, but they're just talking about themselves there because obviously there's a very serious risk that there would be a massive spike. There would be a massive spike in energy prices and gas, oil, all of it would go through the roof and that then would have a spillover, obviously, and that would directly impact the, the, the cost of living for uh, hundreds of millions of, Amer of, of Europeans. And it would also very possibly spill over into other areas of the economy. It could be a global economic crisis unlike anything anybody's ever seen before and it all is for their, to serve their mad ideological agenda of pushing it back against Russia because Russia is a peer competitor basically and they don't want it to ever be in a position to act like a peer competitor even though it already is. Yeah. And you would think that people in Europe would be going, I mean the elites in Europe who love the Western Empire as it is, would be going, oh, that might be taking it too far. Mm -hmm. But I have a tweet yesterday from Guy Verhofstadt, ex-Prime Minister of Belgium, ex-head of the European Commission, or he's heavily, he's an EU guy, he's Mr. United States of Europe, his vision mm -hmm. is the European Union <coughs> being fully politicized into one entity. 
he just tweets a Washington Post article which outlines the same things they have lined up for Russia. Basically, complete throttling of the economy, which they admit would have knock-on effects, even on the United States itself. Mm-hmm. You got that? Well, will I put them on? I, just just tweet. He either doesn't understand, or he does and he doesn't care. Um, of what this implies. Ten years ago, others in Europe did understand they were trying to rein in American, you know, sanctions on Russia. You know, this is having knock-on effects on our agriculture and so on. But no, this kind of full state of financial siege on Russia is welcomed by this European Union head honcho when he says, Putin's brutality is hard to counter, but the West holds an all-important key, money. We must use it. He's one, one can only hope that there, were, there are still enough leaders in the free world today who are willing to put principle over bacon. That's quoting the, the Washington Post editorial, which uh, is obviously trying to frame all of this in the context of Putin is the one who's amoral. We are moral in our use of money and mammon to throttle Russia completely, knowing that it will have adverse consequences for our own fellow citizens. Yeah. Where's, where's, the, where's, the, where's any evidence to back up that... Uh, statement at the very beginning Putin's brutality is hard to counter but the West holds well Putin's brutality is hard to counter what evidence is there to back up the, that statement Putin's brutality that Putin is brutal what are, what are they talking about oh well they, they cite everything they cite everything from he poisons his opponents right they've got he gets some whack. they've got a long list going back yeah they have a long they set up they have a long um, set of evidence proofs facts on the ground which if you take the time to look at one each one individually are manipulated they were done, and then the flag was put on Russia. Obviously, there's MH17 in 2014, um, the assassinations of Litvinenko in 2006. You know, right. that, that's they set it, it up for them. Well there's no, there's no like he believes that. There's no ideological discrepancy there when Mr. Europe he's says fool, Putin's like, brutality is hard to counter. He's it's a fool. like he's a he's, he's a, a fool. He believes it because it serves his interests. But, because he's an Atlanticist and he doesn't want any kind of integration between Europe and Russia and further afield over into Eurasia. He doesn't want any kind of Eurasian integration. He's an Atlanticist. He's looking to America all the time. He sees that that's where his future lies and any, any possible threat. And there is a threat, and this is part of the whole problem, that for a long time, even back during the Cold War, a big, big fear of the Americans and their NATO allies, at least some of them, particularly the Brits, the Brits and the Americans, was that Europe, Western Europe, would fall to the Soviet Union. And yeah. we talked about that before in terms of all the methods that they went into to try and prevent that from happening. The, the, but that continued on. There's, there's, there's no break at all between that policy uh, based on that fear of Western Europe, quote-unquote, falling to Russia. There's no break between the, the, the First Cold War and the Second Cold War, yep. which we're in now. They just continued on uh, without breaking a step. Yep. That Russia, so Russia didn't change in terms of its threat. It has always been a threat from after the Second World War or before the Second World War, but certainly after, from the time yeah. of the Second World War, Russia has been the primary ideological, political, geopolitical, economic, military threat to the West and Be- has been seen that way forever. Because all things being equal, it's integration into, quote-unquote, the West. What would come with it would be a parity in voting power in its influence in determining what does and does not get done, particularly yeah. with its own resources. The West is all for integration, so long as... It's subserv- London, Brussels, Dublin, Dublin, Washington, and Paris 
have the dominating, deciding, the voting power remains with us. It right. doesn't matter whether you represent the world island and 80% of the world's population. We will retain c- control, control over it. Over what happens, yeah. yeah. You're all subservient to us, basically. Yeah. And that's, that's Putin's brutality in his mind. It's like this bulwark to that happening. If we just got rid of him, now it's not that simple, of course. They understand it's him and anyone who would re- maintain the tradition yeah. that he's upholding. If we can just uh, denature that, ideally wipe it away overnight in the palace coup, but whatever, in some way get it under heel, then Russia will get all the money at once, all the investment, the foreign direct investment. I can have access to all the bond markets at once. Mm-hmm. It can it can choke itself sending us as much gas and oil as it wants. Mm. No problem. It can wreck its environment in the process. As long as we have no problem. Doesn't so long stand as for a there's multi- no Putin or anyone like him. As long as it doesn't stand for a multipolar world. As long as it agrees to take its place down the totem pole in yes. a world that is headed by America yeah. and the Anglo-America. Anglo the, the glee with which he, he was beautiful. I love the way he just he, he got it all in less than 10 words. We hold an all-important key, money. We must use it. And it speaks to the yep. – it speaks to a lot of history, really. The control of money, the control of the banking system, mm-hmm. the, this elite club. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have membership at the table, but under our conditions. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and their willingness to, even though they understand the complexity of the world and the integration of all things, their willingness to take a massive hit, well, <coughs> not exactly, for their own electorates to take a massive yeah, hit. for the people to be screwed. Yeah. Um, which we've their... already seen, you know, just before this winter and late fall, you know, gas, gas prices spiked and that caused immediate economic consequences. On everything, it's not just heating of homes, mm-hmm. to which the German government responded by saying, they didn't respond by going, well, how do we ensure energy security this winter? They responded by doing a massive PR, came, pan, PR campaign and telling its population to brace for impact. It's mm-hmm. going to be cold, we're going to have shortages, we're going to have rolling blackouts. Yep. In France yesterday, we saw that headline on RT, told its population to expect a 40% increase in, in the price of uh, in how much they'll pay in, in energy bills this winter. Yeah, we just have that, have that, throw that up there. It's the last RT um, or, uh, article, Scully. Um, this is the, <laughs> French, the French government announcing that basically February. So there's a time frame that, that they all have in mind here, you know, and there's talks going on and, and you know, supposedly to, to, to solve the Ukrainian crisis, to, to find a diplomatic solution, but the US doesn't seem to be uh, inclined in that direction, they feel that they've got the upper hand on on Russia and that they can squeeze them and nail them to the wall and Russia is not willing to do that and that's what we talked previously in previous shows about <clears throat> over the past few months uh, Putin showing a kind of uncharacteristic um, alarm alarm over what was actually happening, what the, the, the messaging he was getting out of Washington, this something had changed that these people were had lost their marbles basically and they were going beyond anything they had ever gone they seem so certain yeah i think like giver hofstadt we just saw there was a gloating yeah 
that they feel that they've got they've got them they've got them over a barrel basically. And this is, I mean, there seems to be a time frame, and this is why we're watching. We're just giving a heads up to people here that uh, you know the French uh, government basically has, has said may see forty percent electricity price surge by February. That's in in, in the space of what? Okay, so like end of February, it's six or seven weeks, but it could be a month in a month's time. So what are they? What are they? What are they hearing? What's the government, French well, government, hearing about what is yeah. possibly in the offing on the political stage that is going to cause this to happen for them to make this announcement? Forty yeah. percent in one month. Yeah, and the man who said it was the country's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire. He he's he's being clever. He's putting it in the context of what just happened in Kazakhstan. He writes. Exactly. He says, "Look what's going on in Kazakhstan. It's quite indicative of what can happen when energy prices explode. It's politically dangerous. It's what, look what it, can happen when politics, when when ideologically possessed politicians lose their marbles, basically, and poke the Russian bear, bear. to the point and, and effectively engage in massively reckless and almost like self-destructive policies to serve their ideological agenda." That makes you know hundreds of millions of people suffer. That's what he actually means by that statement. Yeah. Look what happened in Kazakhstan because yeah. if you put Kazakhstan in the context of it actually being organised from without, probably by elements of Western intelligence services, then you can see the whole point. The point is that we're we're going after Russia here, and there's going to be consequences. We're yeah. going to impose these ridiculous sanctions that may well collapse the entire global economy eventually, but it's worth it. You know, yeah. uh, and and. and <clears throat> I should point out that in Britain, media reports there in December, so before Kazakhstan, told people to expect an average increase of something like 50% in their utility bills over this winter. 50%, that's higher than that, and it predates Kazakhstan. Right. Because they knew it was coming, and it's been, we've talked about this in previous shows, going back to last September, about the you know the whole supply chain crisis, and obviously it was blamed on COVID, but then it went into an energy crisis, gas prices in Europe, and that was blamed on going through the roof, uh, you know, up and down to record highs, and that was blamed on Russia. Russia's withhold supposedly Russia's withholding its gas supplies as a geopolitical tool, and that's what they're speaking there to their fear that I spoke about yeah. previously, which is that uh, Russia would get some kind of a strong political. Uh, influence or control over Europe through its energy supply to Europe, because, and that's what Nord Stream Two is, right? It's a it's a new gas pipeline, already completed, waiting to be put online, but it's put on hold to see uh, if uh, if Russia will, if we can use the activation of Nord Stream Two as leverage to get Russia to do what to stop being Russia, to Putin stop being Putin. Um, so, if you just go to that CNN article, CNN article I just sent you, Scotty, it's um, it's kind of, uh, again, it's indicative. It's saying it's useful to hear, to get the kind of from the horse's mouth what's happening in the State, State Department because they basically just repeat uh, State Department lackeys and, you know, American exceptionalist ideologues, anti-Russian ideologues, what they what they say, you know. And obviously that's very a very good definition of the Biden administration, which is basically the deep state administration. It's the Washington establishment administration. Biden's obviously a puppet uh, for them. But if you just, yeah, just scroll down. Next week, may see one of the most significant and defining moments in relations between the North NATO and Russia since the breakup of the Soviet Union. What an opener. So 30-member state NATO and the Russian Federation will meet in Brussels on Wednesday to discuss the recent build-up of Russian troops on the border between Russia and Ukraine. That's not really what they're discussing, but obviously that's what CNN says. Uh, and 
US and Russian diplomats will meet in Geneva tomorrow, actually, to discuss the same crisis. Uh, so Blinken, US Secretary of State, said there are two paths, one of them being the, op- the, the, the option of diplomacy and de-escalation. The other one, who knows? So scroll down. The recent escalation in tension has sparked fears of a repeat of 2014. Get this. Here's CNN and the State Department's explanation of what happened in 2014. When Russia forcibly annexed the Black Sea Peninsula of Crimea and backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. This act, this act, the fact that Russia was able to do it and get away with it, triggered years of serious conversations in policy circles about the role of the West and whether or not it was capable of standing up to Russia. And of course, there's no mention there of the fact that Russia annexed Crimea and aided the, the separatists in eastern Ukraine because the country was subjected to a massive violent coup by the CIA, effectively, yeah. by the State Department. No mention of that in CNN reporting at all. None of that would have happened. None of what Russia did would have happened if they hadn't organized a violent coup in Ukraine, which is right on, Ukraine, on Russia's border and some a country that Russia has long made it very clear that that country has to remain independent at the very least because it's right on our border and we're not having NATO. As, as you agreed after the fall of the Soviet Union, you agreed with Russian diplomats in, in bilateral talks. You agreed that oh, Russia... Oh, but nothing was ever put <clears throat> on paper. It was put on paper. Well, that's what they keep saying. I, I saw another article today about that. Russia's lie, big lie, yeah. nothing was ever put on paper. We never said that. Well, I, I think I actually have something here um, to that effect, but I'll show you in a minute. Um, so Russia, on relations between the West and Russia never abounded after that point, reaching Cold War level lows, whatever. Blinken said Friday that progress could be made during the next week's diplomatic talks between the US, European and Russian officials, but that it had to be a two-way street with Russia de-escalating the aggression towards Ukraine. Uh, so it was only last month that Moscow published two draft agreements outlining its demands for diffusing tensions on the Ukrainian border. Those demands include rolling, black, rolling back NATO deployments in Eastern Europe to some point in the 1990s, meaning many countries that neighbour Russia and were under the control of the Soviet Union would be less protected by the alliance. Of course, protected but from what? Protected from doing business with Russia? Mm. Basically, keep on. Don't need to look at the picture. Uh, this, along with the promise of NATO not expanding further east, is an unacceptable demand and a non-starter, non-starter from from NATO's perspective. They say that deliberate Russia's demands could be deliberately ridiculous to force a rollback on things like admitting union members, pulling the likes of Ukraine and Finland from the mix. Or could simply be a performance that allows Russia, Russian officials to say that they tried to negotiate in order to justify an escalation of their, to their citizens. You know, they're kind of setting up in advance here that Russia's, but what Russia wants, we're not going to give, and Russia's just going to do what it's going to do anyway, you know, which is kind of the opposite, really, because that's the attack, the attack that, the attack that uh, the Americans are taking. Uh, so again, Sanctions, serious economic consequences. We will use tools that weren't deployed in 2014. Um, it's fair to say that these measures, these sanctions, would be a mixture of hard economic sanctions uh, and even more NATO on Russia's doorstep. <laughs> uh, risky as Western, get this, risky as Western hostility might be in provoking Putin, inaction could be worse. Capitulating to this 
to the out of this world demands would make the overall situation much more dangerous as it would just embolden the Kremlin to act aggressively, says some dude. Moreover, China and other revisionists are watching the reaction. What is notable when, ta- when talking to officials and experts is a sense that the West is far less scared of Russia than it has been in recent years. Poisonings and assassination of Russian citizens on foreign soil, brutal sus- brutal suppression and imprisonment of political opponents, interference in foreign elections and the annexation of Crimea have all painted an image of Putin as a strong leader who must be feared. Don't. And there's a leader of the free world there. Yay. In this image, uh, yeah. <laughs> naturally, if you live in Russia or a neighbouring nation and have opposed Putin, then he's a scary individual. But Putin is an ageing autocrat, obsessed with the legacy of his rule and that of the failure of the Soviet Union. Russia has been ravaged by COVID-19 and the future of its hydrocarbon export economy looks bleak. Aye, Russia is on the ropes. We can go for it here, is what they're saying. Yeah. They say, right? His con- and get, get to see who they're quoting here. His country has an economy roughly the same size as New York. If the West properly coordinated economic sanctions against him and against Russian business without fear, he would be backed into a corner very quickly, says Bill, Bill Browder. Browder. <laughs> do, we need to, do we need to say who Bill Browder is? Magnitsky Act. Bill Browder is a quizzling. Yeah. Look him up. Uh, yeah. Um, so... That's why partly. That's partly why next week is so important. If NATO allies do all do all get on the same page, it could send the strongest possible message at a critical moment. Just as Putin tries to push his luck again, the West has the opportunity to stay in a formal diplomatic setting that it's run out of patience. To say in a formal diplomatic setting that we're out of patience with you, Putin. Yeah, we're drawing a it's, line. Of course, the gamble is really, it's the West that's making the gamble. Yeah. Um, so, and the, gam- the, the gamble is Russia will not do anything in response to anything we do because that risks um, nuclear war, right? Right, which that's is true. Which is true. Which is true. So, okay, how does this play out then? Realistically, next week, neither side backs down. Um, the U.S. goes into its new sanctions regime against Russia. And very quickly. What you seem to be suggesting before Kazakhstan last week when we discussed this, you said that that's basically curtains um, for well, the global economy. As as it is with the U.S. being the um, the main arbiter, the the U.S. dollar being the They're, they the have anchor. A, for they the have a grand plan to stage manage an economic crisis where they think that it's where it serves geopolitical. It's, it's geop, their geopolitical agenda of you know kind of neutering Russia. Let's say really cutting Russia off, souring relations between Russia and Europe forever type thing or for the foreseeable future, uh, hurting Russia economically while everybody else, well, America stays fairly uh, immune to it. They, they, they manage it. It's really only Russia, it's really only Europe that will suffer a little bit, but even that's kind of manageable. Sure, European gas prices and, and, and oil prices would spike and stuff and European consumers would be hit. But, you know, 
it'll last for a while, but we'll get over it, but it's worth it. You know, it's a short-term pain for long-term geopolitical gain for the Washington ideologues. Yeah. And they're willing to allow the... They're willing to let uh, Europeans suffer and maybe Americans to some extent suffer for this greater goal of protecting the realm, um, which is all about themselves, obviously, and nothing to do with people. Uh, but I think they're deluded, and if they try to stage manage a kind of uh, an economic primer, uh, first and foremost uh, an energy crisis that then, then would spiral a bit into other areas of the of the global economy uh, if they think they can manage that they're deluded and that would spiral out of control and uh, it would get beyond them and you would have a, a major a massive economic uh, downturn food riots in Europe you'd have yeah Food supply chain, you know, governments falling. I mean, there's a wild card there of some some kind of uh, environmental or climactic uh, event interceding at just the wrong time, type thing, uh, which might push it over the edge and turn it into a real uh, a real economic downturn. You know what I mean? Where America thinks that it's that it's <laughs> safe or something like that, because you know it's 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 basically it's doing all the sanctioning. It's got control of the economic strings it's not going to america isn't, isn't going to get hurt all the people are hurt a little bit other people in the world russia obviously europe and maybe other places in the world but not america and america obviously you know will control everything ultimately and put things back uh you know put them back the way they were after a certain period of time when the when the when the lesson has been learned let's say by russia or they've been punished enough then they can turn things back on they can say okay now you can turn on Nord Stream to save europe from its uh it's it's Cold en- en- energy or whatever or it is. energy crisis whatever, uh, but who knows? I mean, I have a kind of a that that's crystal ball. Then a further crystal ball, further more abstract crystal ball down the line would be at some point during that process, you might have some kind of an earthquake or something in uh, California, um, causing uh, because you know uh, especially in California because I think most of U.S. imports come through. Uh, west coast ports so if you had any kind of a widespread destruction or problem as a result of an earthquake in california you've at a time when they've already destabilized the global economy albeit in a kind of managed way if you had something real intercede at that point then yeah you're in trouble big trouble everybody's in trouble yeah you remember years ago when in the kind of in between, it's it's in between phase. It's, it's it's how they see it as well themselves. You go from 2014 to now, and they spent all this time wondering how are we going to get back at Russia for what they did to us. Mm-hmm. Gonna, Crimea was like, <laughs> it's, it just said it was as somebody put it at the time. It was the first defeat yeah. for the empire in 500 years. Everything more or less had gone its way yeah. in all outcomes. I mean, for the ultimate money controlled the arbiters yeah. of all this they were outraged that they russia would outraged. have the a power and ability and audacity to to do that you know it, it it led to it led to a flourishing of awakening i suppose among dissenters in the west but also it emboldened people in capitals from delhi new delhi mm-hmm. to beijing to moscow mm-hmm. to talk openly about a new world system yeah. And a multi, multipolar world. It really put Russia on the map for serious-minded people and people who see the world perspicaciously, who understand yeah. how the world actually works. They realize that, okay, America Putin isn't the only, s- only ruler anymore. Yeah. There's a power that can push back against America, and that radically changes the entire... Everyone wanted to buy... Seen. Russian... Russian weapons, weapons, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the air defense. Well, follow, that, that 
was really cemented afterwards when they pretty much a year later they started intervening in Syria. Uh, in Syria. Yeah, but that was which that was, was a follow up because yeah. it gave another example of how things can be mm-hmm, done. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have a terrorist problem. <clears throat> well, watch how you manage it. And I think that's what set the West on the course that they're on now. Right. In 2014, when they saw Russia do do that, they. Their plan at that point was to, like I said, to, to neutralize Russia. It was part of their plan to take Ukraine, to take away Crimea, take away Russia's uh, military base in Sevastopol, their, their naval base in Sevastopol, and really you know, put Russia back in its place way down the pecking order. Russia said, no, we have a different trajectory. And at that point, the ideologues in Washington said, okay, that's, that's it. We're, we're, we have to basically wreck this place. We have to wreck the That's what I was going to say. I remember when we came to... We came to that point and we, we articulated like that, we imagined them in Washington and other capitals going, what are we going to do? And that it appeared from their words and their actions that the grand plan was to go, okay, they think they've won this chess match. So what we'll do is we will wreck the chessboard. Mm-hmm. And is that now, is that now what we're seeing? Well, 2014 was their attempt. Yeah, it is. 2014, uh, their, atten- their, their attempted, their coup in Ukraine, their attempt to take away, to neuter Russia through taking Ukraine. That was part, one step in the process for them securing the realm, like I said before, uh, and to, 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 to dominating, carrying on and dominating the world. Once Russia could, would fall in that respect, then China would be easy to deal with because they wouldn't have Russia as a, as an ally and, the march of the American, new American century would continue on a bit of global dominance, complete global dominance. And that, they were doing that at that point because they realized that if they didn't do that at that point, then the opposite was going to happen. The, the opposite was going to happen. They were going to lose out. They had to take radical, radical action. Uh, and when that failed, then they decided on a, a new plan, essentially. You know, we're not going to get to dominate the world anymore, so we're going to uh, put put a process uh, or start a process uh, to yeah, ultimately and, and we'll re- radically remake the great reset you could call it oh. and a part of that is I presume they have some modicum of actual intelligence left at least in terms of self-preservation so maybe part of the preparation for why there's been seven years between that crisis and this one is because they have thought out at least and put into practice some um, fire control measures for when they do launch Operation Take It All Down, mm-hmm. the, the economic global Samson option or whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. that they would be relatively well insulated of from course, consequences. Yeah. So to manage, manage... So that's the wishful thinking there. They think that they're going to actually... Be able to they're they're going to reset everything to 1945 mm-hmm. where they're still top dog and mm-hmm. everyone else is floored. Mm-hmm. And, oh, what does the mm-hmm. world need? The world needs a massive global Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. And we're in a position to, to save the world tec- from this a, terrible catastrophe. A technocratic Marshall Plan, yeah. A technology-based Marshall Plan, you know. Uh, which obviously involves – this isn't just about geopolitics. Obviously, this is about populations as well and remaking or, or retooling the populations in terms of how they – Act, live, and that's what COVID was all about. The, the 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 very strange disconnect between a supposed just normal health crisis that was only temporary, and you know people just needed to protect some people or whatever. Uh, that that vision of it compared to what they actually did, which is to start instituting um, 
you know, uh, passes, electronic passes for people to get in and out of places, to get in and out of restaurants, to force people to get vaccinated, to trans- divide society along, uh, kind of create an apartheid society on, on health uh, on health grounds. Um, that's all got nothing to do with a so-called respiratory virus that, or respiratory virus that's, that's, that is in a so-called pandemic uh, that is obviously only short-lived and should only just be uh, about health, about what's the best thing people can do, how can we protect people from help them protect themselves, give them some advice. That's what it should have been, but it obviously was massively more than that. So all that other stuff is to do with managing of the population, preparing or conditioning the population towards a reset of the economy and a reboot of the economy and a uh, re-emergence of the global economy along more digital, cashless, technocratic technology. More more resource-scarce. Yeah. Um, lines, yeah, we're basically rationing, right? And to how to manage the rationing with so many people? Well, you need the help of digital technology for it. Um, mm-hmm. That crossed my mind earlier this week. That from March twenty twenty, the obsession with having restaurants closed, yeah, uh, it might be simply to do with basic food allocation, where that was okay. Let's just write that all off because that's excess. We're going to need those reserves for what's coming next. Right. Um. Yeah. Uh, just throw up that. This, uh, I saw it on Pepe Escobar on the, the Twitter. Uh, just to, on that point, you said about there was no assurances given after the collapse of the Soviet Union that NATO would not expand yeah. westwards. This is from the National Security Ar- Archive at George Washington University. These are documents that were uh, declassified. Uh U.S. Secretary of State James Baker's famous not one inch eastward assurance about NATO expansion in his meeting with Soviet, with, with Gorbachev in 1990 was part of a cascade of assurances about Soviet security given by Western leaders to Gorbachev and other Soviet officials throughout the process of German unification in 1990, according to declassified U.S., Soviet, German, British and French documents posted today by the National Security Archive at George Washington University. A cascade of assurances, verbal, written. The documents show that multiple national leaders were considering and rejecting Central and Eastern European membership in NATO as early as 1990, and that discussions of NATO in the context of German unification negotiations were not at all narrowly limited to the status of East German territory, and that subsequent Soviet and Russian complaints about being misled about NATO expansion were founded in written contemporaneous memcons and telcons at the highest levels. The documents reinforced former CIA director Robert Gates' criticism of pressing ahead with expansion of NATO eastward in the 90s when Gorbachev and others were led to believe that wouldn't happen. So, you know, is it written down? Is it an official stamp document? Whatever. Does it matter when the Russians... At the very least, a gentleman's agreement, which at that level... Repeatedly, over and over again, assurances were given. Complaints were forthcoming and assurances were given that this would not happen, this would not happen. Uh, so yeah, well, to do the opposite then is, is, to, is to go back on those assurances to, to, yeah. you know, and to say they were never given is a lie. So Russia has every reason to complain about expansion of NATO westwards given that at the time, at the setup of this new order after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was agreed by Western politicians that 
there wouldn't be any expansion of NATO eastwards in any way that would seriously bother Russia, which is obviously now they're on, they're more or less on Russia's border in Ukraine. And that's why Russia's pissed off. And that's why the narrative is that Russia is threatening to invade Ukraine. And that's why we have to sanction Russia because <coughs> it's going to invade Ukraine because, you know, that, you know that graphic you see, you see people from a few years ago, you know, uh, uh, a picture of the globe, whatever, and all the mil- U.S. military bases. Yeah. And the, the caption is, "Look at, look at, uh, yeah. look at how close all these countries are putting their borders to to NATO military bases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or to U.S. military bases. You know, uh, we're not moving closer to your border. Your border somehow moved closer to our military base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're guilty of expansionism. Yeah. You your border wasn't there before. We're going to sanction you. You've yeah. come far too close to our bases. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It's crazy. So I think that's, that's such liars. I think that's where it's going, and I think it'll happen pretty quickly. I mean, obviously, I can give no one hundred percent assurances, whatever. But I think uh, this week we'll see a lot out of uh, how things go with this meeting tomorrow in Geneva, and then more directly on Wednesday over Ukraine between Russia and the US, uh, and and how the Russians respond to that, and what the narrative is, and you know, you get a you get a clear feel for it from. From, from how it's going, from from the reports on it, and the, the way they set it up, it sounds like they want to have Russia do something. Yeah, that justifies the sanctions they want to impose. Yeah, um, but maybe we'll we all see a flare up, but it'll be a flashpoint. It'll be a relatively brief incident because I I doubt they will just go over the top anyway and say, okay, well, Russia did invade, but we're we're going to go ahead and throttle it anyway. They would they would want to go down as having been morally justified to yeah a just war you know for sure yeah yeah but so we might we should probably expect to see something happen in 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 Donetsk in, I mean, in, uh, in or around to do with uh, Ukraine yeah 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 for sure but you'll what I mean in terms of uh, as an out an outcome of the talks that they're having tomorrow on Wednesday you'll get a feel from the reporting in those talks and from, from what the Russians say about them and stuff of where the land, land uh, what, where the lay of the land is, basically, and how it, how it looks going forward and what's likely to happen soon after that, you know. Uh, so they'll go through the process of having the talks, but my expectation is that there'll be nothing, no agreement, Russia won't be happy, uh, they won't get any assurances, they'll be pissed off, and then it'll be stalemate, and then <clears throat> something will be provoked in, uh, in Ukraine trying to provoke Russia into doing something so they can shut down Nord Stream 2 and then institute their uh, economic, phony economic crisis uh, or their kind of managed economic crisis for Europe and Russia and maybe other parts of the world. Uh, but then it all goes soon, sometime thereafter, spirals out of control. And not necessarily because of any revenge. You notice that in their framing of this and reporting it to the CNN audience, they put in their headlines, comma, and also their fears of Russian cyber counterattacks. They're mm-hmm. already setting it up that, that such that when we do this, expect revenge from Russia, which will cause us problems at home. Yeah, I, which means we'll double down our sanctions and it'll be tit for tat, and it'll just it'll be a, it, it'll be a race to that, race to the bottom. If that, I doubt even there would be such measures. I think they're preparing the ground for when there is blowback, so they can refer to, well, you see, they've got an ongoing high-level financial slash digital cyber war going on with Russia. Mm. That's why, you know, 
the shortage of goods yeah, over exactly. here. Well, well, we're well, trying to keep the world at peace, but see those Russians over there, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. They keep screwing up the. Um, they keep screwing up our websites. They're trying to. They keep, hacked Amazon. Well, they, they set it up all last year. There were dozens of hacks. Remember the one where the oil pipeline shut down from Texas to Louisiana all mm. the way up to the New West Northeast? Mm. Russia and did. they're like, Russia did it. It was so flagrantly not Russia, and it was, in fact, a domestic test of some kind mm. by U.S. intelligence that a week later Biden said, no, nah, Russia didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. But they ran with the headline for, you know. If in doubt, Russia did it, yeah. Yeah, it's been set up. I mean, it's a long process of setting up that scenario, you know what I mean? And that's why... That's why I'm coming at it from this perspective is that I'm looking back over 10, 15 years here and seeing a pattern, a build-up, you know, to a certain... And obviously, as more and more data comes in, it confirms to me where this is going. Obviously, you know, my opinion on it, it's not, I'm not saying I knew where it was going 10 or 15 years ago, but I've... I've well, five I've, years ago, we, we knew they were going to wreck the chessboard. Yeah, in some way, in some way. In some way. But as things progress, then we get more details. It fleshes out the details of what the likely scenario of, of, of what their plans are. And, of course, in that process, their own plans have been uh, coalescing and being refined down to more specific measures as that happens, yeah. you know. We're and just watching it as, it as it moves along, you know what I mean? To, to, to say my previous point in another way, the, the tragic comic part of it all is that they don't actually need Russia to engage this battle to bring about the scenario. There can be a provocation that makes it look like all of the actions, 100%, the sanctions, mm -hmm. um, the blowback, which will be a result of market you know, going, yeah, yeah. going nuts, will all be their own doing. And mm -hmm. then the, the things that they roll out to solve those problems mm -hmm. will create... You know what I mean? It's 100%. They're fighting this this phantom that isn't engaging in a battle right. back with them. Well, they're fighting with themselves. They're, doing, yeah. they're, playing, they're, they're fighting both sides of the war, right? They're the enemy and the, and the defender, supposedly, you know? I mean, that's a very plausible scenario is that they, if Russia doesn't take the bait and doesn't do anything, they go ahead and impose some sanctions anywhere, have some kind of provocation that they justify some kind of sanctions against Russia on because they really want to impose those sanctions because those sanctions are important to start the ball rolling so that they can justify some kind of an economic downturn that they hope will, you know, will add, will allow them to pass more sanctions against Russia. So, like, in terms of cyber, the mention of cyber attacks, they could do uh, carry out a cyber attack themselves that would damage the economy somewhere in the world, like in America and the West and Europe or somewhere, and blame it on Russia, and then use that as justification for more sanctions against Russia. Against Russia. If your goal is to have a managed, stage-managed crash of the economy, you're going to do it whatever way you yeah. want to, basically, and, yeah. and you will use Russia's hand, you know, uh, you, you'll, you'll kind of pretend, to, you'll put Russia's hand in the middle of it, you know, you'll, you'll put their fingerprints on it. It's very easy to do, you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, they put Russia's, supposedly put Russia's fingerprints on the hacking of the DNC, yeah. the hacking of the American election, supposedly, in 2016, by calling, by, by calling some group Fancy Bear, you know, well, Bear, right? Fancy. Something like that, yeah. They call it Fancy Bear. So fancy yeah. bear, and, and people were like, oh, you bear Russia? Of course, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's fancy bear. So fancy fancy Russian bear hacked our elections. Yes, yeah, we Russians, we are clever. We hacked was... your elections and we left a signature. Yeah. So you would never find us. Exactly. <laughs> what the yeah. fuck? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and of course, it was, the, it was the NSA that did it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that's how America rolls, you know? Okay, so having framed it like that, what then what was the point of um, either piggybacking on or provoking this rioting in Kazakhstan last week. Well, 
I mean, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan was something that was very likely had been set up over several years, hmm. however many, like five, six years, whatever you do. You, you put the pieces in place, you make the contacts, you get agreements, you put infrastructure in place, and then it's waiting there at any moment for the button to be pressed. Uh, they decide they've got the resource that they put, or they've got this option that they've put all these resources into, and now is a good time. I mean, Kazakhstan isn't that important. But they spent but it now. So they spent it the right in advance. It? Well, right in advance of, you know, uh, I mean, maybe it didn't play out how they wanted it to. There's yeah. a lot of desperation in what these people are doing yeah. right now. Um, so it didn't play out how they wanted to. Russia, eventually, other countries that you attack in this way get wise to your to your methods, and they know how to cut them off fairly quickly. And it seems that I think Russia, in the case of Kazakhstan, cut off. Uh, you know, uh, they 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 stopped it prematurely from where it would have gone to, where where the. Uh, and the US would have liked to have gone to, which was a full-blown, longer-running coup where Russia would have been sucked in for more, uh, in terms of more, uh, they would have had to involve themselves more because of more conflict, more trauma, more like a, a Ukraine situation, you know what I mean? Although Russia didn't get directly involved in Ukraine, but they it was a bait to, to Russia. And of course, Russia said, okay, I see your bait. I'm going to do what we need to do, which is send in a, in a, few, in a few thousand uh, troops to secure the area and, you know, we'll have ongoing, you know, will manage the situation with the Kazakh government and make sure it gets uh, strangled in the crib, if you like. Uh, so it, it doesn't go anywhere. But the aim, obviously, would have been to create a, a crisis on uh, Red and Russia's border uh, that Russia was directly involved in a, at a time when a they were going... ahead of... At, at a time when... An ongoing, if, if, they, if it had gone where they wanted to go, it would be ongoing at a time where they're having uh, meetings about Ukraine, yeah. where they are accused of doing the same thing that they're accusing you right. of doing in Kazakhstan, right. of, of interfering in, in other, uh, other elections, suppressing dissent, suppressing uh, grassroots uh, uh, protests glo- for democracy. Global Nigisov. Yeah, absolutely. I've got you, son of a bitch. Yeah. They really do think they've got Russia. Yeah. Do you, that's, do what's, that's what's alarming Putin. Yeah. If I see someone who I've been a competitor with for a long time and we've jousted and, and stuff but we both I both I had an understanding that we both understood or that my opponent understood that there was a line that wasn't shouldn't be crossed you know we can play our games there's a lot of latitude for you to try and screw me over and I try and push back against you from screwing me over and I try and serve my interests and you do as much but there's an understanding that you don't go too far you don't you know you don't start punching me in the face but when I see, or, or you don't start getting really violent, but when I see for years where we've, let's say we've just wrestled together, but I look over one day and I see you... Uh, preparing knives. Preparing knives or guns. I go, what's going on here? This is, this is you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to play with, that's not playing anymore in a certain sense. We call it, we've called it playing all this time, although it's been serious and you've used all sorts of dirty tactics, but you have never gone to the point where you would actually try and kill me. But when you pull out a knife or a gun, when I see you starting to you know, go for your knives or guns, you're changing the nature of the game, and that's serious. You're bringing it up to a level of seriousness that is not, good, yeah. is not going to be good. I can warn you, it's not going to be good for anybody, because I also have a gun. Because obviously, if you pick up a gun, I'm going to pick up a gun. And I don't want to pick up a gun, because both of us will probably be dead. But what's concerning me is that you don't seem to care or even know that you'll be dead too. Right. I'm I'm seeing a kind of death wish in you. You yeah. know, I don't want to play with someone who has a death wish. Yeah. 
So, you know, a bunch of senators last couple of weeks um, tried to get it into law, but it's you know remains on the books somewhere in the U.S. in the bowels of Congress that they it should Putin run and win in 2024, they wouldn't recognize his legitimacy. Which would have cascading effects in terms of, I mean, he would basically, mm-hmm. they'd basically be saying you're no longer um, a protected man. Mm. That's the kind of implied threat. If you fly anywhere in the world mm. and you're shot down, well, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you don't, you're not, a, you're no longer afforded the same basic diplomatic yeah, you become courtesy a as pariah. Yeah, you're a no complete longer. pariah. Mm. So it moves from all the headlines they've given what with right Putin, they have? pariah to an actualization of it. Yeah. Um, where your Interpol warrant out for your arrest basically kind of you can't thing. leave your country and stuff I mean what do they get off doing that like that's massive arrogance and hubris like for one country in the world to like think they have the right to, dis- to determine who gets to be of course I mean when I say it now you know who gets to be the ruler of any country that's been America's thing for you know 80 years uh, and they're well uh, versed and well trained in that and they absolutely believe that they do have the right to do that and they have acted on their belief yeah. and their right to do that multiple multiple times so yeah it is a situation where you have someone who's lost their marbles basically they've just lost the plot and they don't realize that you can't do what you you're not going to be able to do what you think you're able to do i hope because or maybe you do know that you won't be able to do it do what you think you're able to do what you're saying you're going to do and you don't care is even worse. So Putin's in the process of trying to tell these tell Americans, listen, what you think you're going to do, it's not going to work out that way, and you're going to suffer a lot. And he says that to them, and they say, meh. And then he looks at them and says, so you do know that you're not going to be able to do it, but that means that you don't care. So now I'm really alarmed. I think you've lost your marbles. I'm concerned. I mean, I beforehand, you at least talked a bit of sense and yeah. when you talked you more or less acted in that way okay you bent the rules a bit but you more or less stuck to your guns but I'm getting the impression now that you're not a rational actor anymore you're not rational you're, you're you've got a crazy crazy idea and you don't seem to know that it's a crazy idea or you do and you don't care which means you're crazier than I thought you were <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah that's the kind of impression I'm getting off from, from like we're talking about his, his yeah. alarm is that's and that's my reading I, I can imagine why he would be alarmed because that's the impression I get from the Americans as well and the Europeans and the European well the Europeans are yeah they're, a lot of them are part of it a part of the whole Atlanticist uh, movement and ideology and they're on board a lot of them who aren't part of it just are going along because they don't know what else to do they don't have the power or influence to say anything about it so they just carry on and they, they believe the propaganda you know there are a few though that are just going like dude Oh, well, we don't hear them anymore. The 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 European um, Joseph Borrell, he's currently the European Union quote unquote foreign minister. Um, on New Year's Eve, uh, there's a report of him saying, in response to the Russians pleading for someone in NATO stand, anyone True. to please respond to these proposals we have. It's basically a draft peace treaty he sent out to Brussels. And Washington, and he laughed it off and told a reporter, "Only winners get to tell us what the red lines on anything are." Um, yeah. "Quote: We cannot compromise on fundamental principles." Yeah. 
if Moscow wants to talk about the security architecture in Europe, uh, well, we do not want to and must not be involved. On, oh, yeah, that's something else. He was bitching on the side about the fact that this was direct communication only at the time between the Kremlin and Yeah, they're bypassing the Europe. Bypassing Europe. There's a bunch of Europeans getting getting all uh, offended by the fact that uh, Russia is talking to America and sidelining Europe because well, the reason Russia is doing that is because no, it knows that Europe is basically a vassal state of America and, and these, at least in these respects, there's no, pointing, no point in talking to European leaders because uh, about America because they have no leverage over America. You have to talk to, it's the other way around. America has leverage over Europe. If you want to deal with Europe, well, you can deal with Europe to some extent. You can appeal to Macron, you can appeal to Merkel, uh, when she was around, uh, you can try to appeal to them, but you always know that there's this big brother looming in the background, eavesdropping on every single conversation, every yeah. word, you know. Um, yeah. So we didn't mention COVID at all. Is that good? good? Is that good? good. COVID's... Our, our only mention, my only comment on COVID, well, as, as, it, as it relates to what we've just been saying, is that it's kind of going away. They're still trying to... Governments are still trying to exploit and use the capital they have built up over the past two years, the capital they built on the basis of fear, exaggerated hysterical fear among the population. They're still trying to use some of that reserve that's left over to try and talk up army cold, as if it's anything other than the cold. But there's a lot of stuff I'm seeing where people are just... You know, scientists and stuff are saying, "Yeah, you know," and even Boris Johnson yesterday said, "We're going to have to just live with it. We're not going to test. We're, we're they shut down testing, basically yeah. the mass testing. Shut that down. Let's just live with with it as the cold. If that happens in Europe, even though the UK isn't part of Europe anymore, but anyway, the UK does that. Other countries won't be far behind, especially uh, as we move into warmer weather into spring, summer. Can you imagine army cold in the summer?" Really, it's it's an, it's 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 nothing, and there's too long a time between now. It's already running out at the height of the winter season when everybody should be like in previous the past in last year. Everybody was encouraged and was willing uh, willingly crapping their pants about it and locking themselves in their houses. Now they're not doing any more. Obviously, two boost two two jabs and a booster. I'm protected. It's the cold. What what, what am I meant to be afraid of? If that's happening in January, early January, um, you're, it's going to peter out as it gets into summer, and then you're not going to be able to resurrect it next September, October, right? Uh, <laughs> this is the point in the show where Joe goes, "We've reached, we've reached the nadir. It don't get any worse." No, exactly, but but, but that's why it relates to what I'm, what we've been talking about yeah. for most of the show, which is that this. I think they're just because they know that the the control that they've been afforded by. Uh, the the scariants and the 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 pandemic, the so-called pandemic, and the conditioning that came with the it. conditioning is running out. It's it's a finite resource in that respect. It's 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 not sustainable for forever. It's going away. The virus at the level of virology and stuff has turned into uh, an endemic virus globally. It's not really a threat to anybody anymore anymore than the cold or the flu. Uh, so, sorry, that game's over. But let's segue straight into an economic disaster. Yeah. And, of course, the leverage, the, the, the thing they'll carry over is, you mentioned the conditioning. Right. Which will be very useful. Lockdowns. 
dependence on government. The last two years primarily has been about conditioning people to be more dependent on government. Yeah, to be That's responsive. That's all it's been about, to be responsive to the future crisis when yes, you were coming. absolutely. To, to condition Pavlovian, like, to condition people to, to, to look to government as their saviours, to hang on their every word, you know. And that's very important for government. A government, that's, that's their job, right? And in peacetime, when there's nothing happening, it's like people just basically stop paying attention to government and government say, well, what about me? Am I not important anymore? You want to be listening to me, damn you. Uh, how dare you not listen to me? How dare you <laughs> kind of look the other way or, or dismiss me, you know? Uh, so governments really like to have a crisis where they can engender that kind of dependence of the population on government. And, and that's, what been, that's what they've been doing over the past two years. And it will, like you said, be very useful for stuff that's coming down the pipeline, we think. Watch the space. Watch the space, yeah. So nothing else happened? Well... That was it? No, there's more, but... Was um, there? Nothing of any note. Djokovic, whatever. That's, 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 everybody knows what's going on with Djokovic. Uh, his first name is Novak. Novak. Close enough. Yeah. Uh, Novak Djokovic. We'll see tomorrow. Yeah, whether they let him play or let him go. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I hear you on the. You know, they've run out of steam with the virus. Yeah. But the the vaccine and the, yeah, yeah. the mandatory and the follow the orders that's yeah. not going anywhere. But there's not much point in having a vaccine requiring a vaccine pass to go to a restaurant when restaurants can't get any food to serve people. Right. How many people are going to be using their vaccine pass? You, need, you might need your vaccine pass to get a hand out of a bag of wheat from the back of a government supply truck that comes to your town once a week. Uh, or, or maybe not. I'm pretty sure just, they just give it to everybody who sticks their hand out. But, or, or to get into the, the food bank, maybe, government food bank. Maybe you need a vaccine pass, you know, uh, who knows. But I don't think, I think all that's kind of, kind of going away, you know. The plans they have are... Are very, um, are, are very. They're all predicated on their, their implementation. Are predicated on on them actually being able to do what they they think they're they're, they're going to be able to do, which they're not. Do you know what I mean? So they have yeah. a lot of plans that look like this fits with this, and it's going in this direction. This will be very useful for this. But at a certain point, when chaos breaks out and chaos reigns, it's all all falls apart. You know. And just for people who are wondering, this all might sound like grand conspiracy theory, but I don't, I'm not saying there's some grand plot plan to do all this. The reason all of this is happening, all the stuff that we talk about happens, is because it's not because of some necessarily some grand scheming in a back room with people smoking and saying, yes, we will control all the people forever. Right? That's not what we're saying. Yeah. That happens in a certain sense, but it's simply the nature of the beast, right? Uh, lions get together and plan and plot to pick off or to kill uh, an impala on a hunt. They don't do the mwahahaha beforehand, right? Yeah. It's the nature of the beast. It's programmed into them. They act on their instincts. Farmers um, with sheep plan to corral sheep and all that kind of stuff, but they don't do it in a Machiavellian mwah-ha-ha-ha-ha, right? If, but if a sheep woke up 
and became a bit conscious of what was going on, he would very likely go, holy shit, you know what those farmers are doing? They're talking in a room about how they're going to put us here and put us there and whatever. And it's like... And eject so, us with stuff. Yeah, exactly. They're going to eject us to control us and stuff. But yeah, that's... And it can look that way from the sheep's perspective, but that's not what the farmer's doing. The farmer's simply doing what's expedient and necessary for him to get what he needs to survive. Now, when you're talking about people in positions of power, you're talking about character disturbed people or pathological people who have a certain need or a certain thing that they feed on and they're simply doing what is expedient for them to get what they feel they need to survive. And from your perspective, they see it as they are the perfect race and we are different. Well, everybody has a narrative for it, right? But uh, that's actually what's happening in the broad scheme in the objective sense. They're just, it's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of government. It's yeah. the nature of corrupt human beings. It's the nature of pathological human beings that that is way, the way they act. They respond. They do plan and implement things, but there's no point in looking at it from some kind of... And it's, it's used as a pejorative to kind of say, well, how could everybody be involved in it? How could everybody be part of it and all that kind of stuff? And it's not controlled in that way. It's, it's not all plotted together. They don't all, all, you know, I don't know, all whoever, however many tens of thousands of people are necessary to, or, or are part of the infrastructure that, for example, did the COVID thing, right? Did the... They didn't all get in a room and plan it all out and sketch it all out as a way to deceive the population. They all yeah. acted on their their basic human yeah. human drives and instincts. Most of together, them, mon- monkey see, monkey do. Right, like the sage people in the UK yeah. saw what Italy did and went, oh, and they'd seen what China, China did, did and they went, oh, yeah, and they said, well, that would work here. We could do that. That would oh, be useful. Look at that. Yeah, and we would do. And the narrative is we'd be helping the population, but behind it, unknown to them, unbeknownst to themselves, is a drive to control and. And, and, you know, be in the limelight and have the power and tell people what to do. And it's they feel good at that. But they never admit that to themselves, obviously. And most people don't admit what their own drives are for anything they do. Uh, they have a narrative around it. So it's just basically human nature. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated. But a lot of people don't look closely enough at it and analyze it from a kind of objective uh, perspective, you know. Uh, yeah. A dispassionate perspective. And the, the the U.S. and its intrigues and geopolitics is also apparently complex. But another way of a kind of mental exercise you can have is if you imagine there was no Russia, mm-hmm. well, they would still be imagining up a scenario where they'd be creating a phantom fight in order to create a situation where they need us, mm-hmm. they depend on mm-hmm. us. The U.S. is like the kind of macro version or representative, the, the the archetypal version of any government anywhere in the world, where they capitalize on a situation and go, well, whatever the most important thing is here is I get to keep making decisions. Yeah. Everything else is gravy. That's the important thing is they still keep coming back to me every day to tell them yeah. when they can go shopping, how many jobs they need to take. That's yeah. important. And the U.S. is like just the top dog of right. all those governments who's doing it on a global scale. Yeah. Through other governments. Right. And governments and, and, and politicians do that initially in a, or, or that hierarchy or political structure in relation to the people is formed naturally and in a genuine way because people have needs. And there are people in society who are smarter, more intelligent, whatever, uh, who are more capable at taking decisions and fulfilling the needs of the, of the population, right? Um, so that's, and that's natural and good, right? But the problem is, as, as People, as the people become more competent, 
what happens to the politicians who have staked their claim or it's their, it's their reason for existing is to tell other people what to do. When, when you get attached to that and a feeling of, the feeling of control and it becomes pathologized and you feel like that, that it's not so much about helping people other more and anymore but rather about controlling people and if you f- sense that you're not going to be able to control those people anymore because they become more self-sufficient, well, what do you do? Well, they start to think about things, how you can create problems for them so they still need you. Yeah. Because I'm attached to the idea of needing. There's even a thing like in, in psychology and family psychology with kind of mothers, you know. Uh, there's the, the devouring mother, and it obviously happens with fathers as well or whatever, but um, where the mother becomes very attached and very needy in terms of her control and influence over the child because it's seen as a need. You need me and I feel good. I get something from you needing me. But as the child grows up, doesn't need the mother anymore. It's become an adult. But many, there's obviously cases where mothers will then, when they see that starting to happen in the child, they're becoming more independent, will start to do things that hamper its development and yeah. create conditions in it where it continues to need the mother forever. Yeah. Because I need you to need me. I, because, well, it, there's a dynamic there where I'm in a powerful position over you and I like that position and I don't want you to grow out of that. So as the global population possibly grows or a certain section of them anyway starts to grow out of that dependency and need for government to look after them governments have a similar response they don't like it anymore and they instinctively know that how do we make the, make sure these people still still need us well a good crisis what what would scare them right what's scary what what would they feel what kind of situation can we create where they feel that they they're not capable and they uh, they need us Let's go back to our often used, often used phrase from uh, V for Vendetta, you know. The Chancellor saying, I want everybody to know why they need us. I want everybody to remember why they need us. Yeah. You know, so it's a kind of, it's a, it's a general, basic, sim- fairly simple from a psychological point of view, truth. But it's weird that that's what always gets me is people don't don't see it you know they see it at, in, at local levels and they're willingly accept that that's true at local levels i even know someone who was like that but you're, you're not allowed or they're they're unable to project it you know to to, to broaden it out to a, a social level or a population level and government you know to a mass level it can it can exist at a local level of interpersonal two people but it can't exist uh, on a macro level between government and people almost like two two individuals made up of many people you know yeah well that it's partly because the the governments have the state whatever has messed with their heads for so mm. long that to do so is to go against god right they don't articulate it like that in their minds to do what well god has been replaced and now yeah. the state is right. god yeah, yeah. and that would be to go against the sanctity of all things and it's it's right. beyond just personal me and my relationship with mom and dad like now it's like my relationship with the almighty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the media said such everyone's saying it so that must be true mm-hmm. that's that's axiomatic yeah, yeah. now yeah. you know yeah the mess of their heads in the form of information and, and what they, they provide the media and government to present information that's directly opposed to what people feel and see instinctively and it creates a, a confusion in people you know what i mean where they're the official source of information or the official source of reality is telling me something opposite to what i see with my own eyes what do I do? Do I believe my own eyes or do I believe the authority? I mean, they're smarter than me. They know they've got all this information, all these resources to collect information. Surely what they say is true. But when I look, I don't see that. And therein lies the choice, right? 
can't stop the signal now.